Good morning again, everyone. How are you all? That bad? How are you all? Oh, very good, good. Um, fabulous, excellent. I wish uh, God's blessings upon you. Thanks for everyone who is here today. I would like to welcome everyone who is uh, watching from at least six states in the United States. And I am delighted to say hello and wish God's blessings upon all of our international visitors from Poland, Canada, Philippines, and India, at least, if not some countries we are unaware of. Um, we are developing something of an international ministry. And I've been in contact with a good pastor from India this week. And I'll give you a, a pleasant report about our growing international ministry uh, next week as we begin the business meeting. So pray for our brothers and sisters who are now literally in watching and joining us from all over the world. And pray that our ministry amongst states here in, uh, at home in the United States grows as well. Um, I haven't heard from Lynn Papafus yet about her travel plans. I believe she's still home. And I don't know if the COVID situation is going to keep her at home, but uh, she was planning on traveling up to Massachusetts to be with her brother for a while for Christmas. So if, uh, pray for her if she is, is heading that way. That's going to be a long trip for her and her little doggy. Uh, Claudia is not here today. I don't know if she had another uh, treatment this week or not. She's doing very, very well, as you can see from her continued presence here in person and last week, but continue to pray for her and uh, for her treatments. Um, with that, let's consult our global prayer guide, as has been our custom for quite some time now, to bring to your attention some brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus who are in the opposite side of the world from us. Today, I would like to bring to your attention brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Pakistan. Pakistan, according to the Voice of the Martyrs Ministry, is a restricted nation. Pakistani churches include believers from diverse faith backgrounds, including both traditional and evangelical denominations. All Pakistani Christians do face great difficulties, discrimination, and persecution because of their Christian identity. Some evangelicals take great risks to witness to Muslims, baptize converts, gather them into churches. Many Christians are working tirelessly to equip, encourage, and educate Christian youth. Some Christians are bold in evangelizing and distributing God's word in radical Muslim neighborhoods and cities, some of which are home to extremist groups like the Taliban. Many Christians belong to the lower castes of society, and are forced to work long hours focusing on providing for their family. This makes Bible study and other Christian activities rather difficult for them. The majority of Pakistanis are Sunni Muslims, but there are also sizable Sufi Muslim and Hindu populations, as well as an oppressed Christian minority. Pakistanis of Christian heritage are widely persecuted by society there. Family members, radical Islamist groups, and the government also persecute Christians. Because of Pakistan's Blasphemy laws, Christians are at constant risk of being falsely accused of blaspheming Islam, the Quran, or Muhammad, and they receive harsh punishments when convicted. Street evangelism is legal under Pakistani law, and several bold evangelists do take opportunity and advantage to share the gospel publicly. 
Many Christians live together in closed neighborhoods known as colonies, which provide a measure of security. Still, several large-scale attacks have occurred in these colonies recently, including during Christmas of 2017, Easter of 2018. In general, Christians are trapped in a cycle of poor education and poverty there. Many are employed as indentured servants in brick kilns, tree nurseries, street sweepers, or sewage workers. A few Christians have been in prison for long periods of time, while many others cycle in and out of prison charged under the country's blasphemy laws. Bibles may be legally printed and distributed in Pakistan. However, some Muslim groups oppose the Bible. Those living in rural, tribal, and mountainous areas have very little access to God's Word. Voice of the Martyrs provides outreach in difficult areas, training for local pastors and evangelists, and immediate aid to persecution victims. Voice of the Martyrs also supports distributions of God's Word in various formats. So please pray for our brothers and sisters in the troubled country of Pakistan. Remember them today, this week, and always in your prayers. Obviously, as well, this is uh, the first Sunday of the month, so I trust everyone has their soul happy in the Lord Jesus Christ and prepared to participate in the Lord's Supper. It is also, as some folks uh, observe traditionally, Advent, the particular celebration at this time of year, the coming of our Lord and Savior in His Incarnation. We have a very uh, special treat for you coming up on the 20th. Brother Dan is going to be uh, preaching for you on Sunday the 20th. No, you're not quite rid of me. I'm going to be here, but I'm going to step down and let Elder Dan. Uh, and I believe you. it's going to be concerning Christmas. Yes? Oh, yeah. It'll be a Christmas thing. You'll get a Christmas message from Dan. Most on likely the, out of the book of Luke. Most likely out of the book of Luke. Excellent. Thank you very much. So we have much, much to look forward to. Um, yes, pray. I will give you more details next week. It's all good news. It's absolutely delightful. But pray for our folks overseas. There are folks watching and listening to Bible studies and to these messages that are now almost literally all around the world. And who would have thought? Who would have thought? I suppose that's one good thing that COVID accomplished amongst this little group of people. When that settled in on us in March and we began filming everything, the number of folks watching in in our community and around the country and around the world just dramatically increased. So that's a wonderful thing. And we're very grateful for that. It's humbling. It uh, places a lot of responsibility on us, but it's, it is a wonderful thing that the Word of the Lord is going around the world by way of our humble little efforts here. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for these folks who are loyal and faithful to you. Uh, thank you for those who are loyal and faithful to you in Pakistan and Philippines and in India and in Canada. Perhaps other countries with which I'm at this moment not aware Folks in Tennessee, Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia, and I believe a few other states that I'm forgetting who are watching. Thank you for these folks who wish to soak their souls, their minds, and hearts in the truth of your word. Help us to be faithful and diligent, humble, and responsible 
to teach the truth of your word to folks here in our own home community, in our own home church, and around our country and our world. And we are very, very grateful for them and for these folks joining us. Please bless them in the way that you know best. Meet all of their needs, many of which we are not aware of. Give them courage and bravery by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word to translate your words into action in their life and to let their light shine for the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever little corner of the world in which they may live. Thank you for the ministry of this church. Help us to continue to reach out in any way that we possibly can to folks here in our own country and around the world. And that is most gratifying to know that. Uh, give us the resources we need to, to help folks here and abroad as, as we may, as we can, uh, as you see fit. I pray for everyone's need, for their troubles, for their trials. Reveal yourself to everyone in a very, very special way in which they can see you at work in their life and respond to you. Help them to dutifully respond to you, all of us. Forgive us of our sins, our many faults and our many failures. Give us the power of your spirit to obey you, to obey the truth of your word and to be sanctified in you, to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness on our way to our eternal home. I pray, Father God, for Sister Claudia, who is not here this morning. I trust that her health is good, that her treatments are coming along well. Thank you for your, her witness and her example to us, to her family, and to all the medical personnel who are helping her, help her in her future treatments, give her doctors wisdom and how to treat her case wisely and well. I pray for Judy at home. Help her in her health and her legs. I pray for Lynn and for her travel to see her brother, which I know she would wish to do, perhaps to Canada to see Andre and his family. I pray for Shelley and her problems at home. Help this family with their difficulties in their house. I pray for Brother Bruce Boyd and the problems with his house that he's going to have in the spring. Help that situation to be handled amicably. And I pray for his health and the health of his family. I pray for everyone at the Dorothy Love community, for their health, for their healing, for their spiritual well-being, first and foremost. I pray for the staff at Dorothy Love who are very, very hard-pressed. Please help them to have the help that they adequately need to adequately care for all of those sweet people out there. Please help Dan and Kim and Jean and their ministry to that community. Give them opportunities safely to reach more people, to help them, to be a blessing and a light and an inspiration in our life. I pray for Dan and Kim's church in Springfield for their meeting next week. Oh, Father God, that church needs your help. They need your help. They need the truth of your word. They need courageous brothers to stand and fight. They need for saints to be true to you, to one another, and to your word. And to make some very tough decisions, and I pray you will give them the ability to make very sound decisions. May you be glorified in the end through these saints, no matter what happens. Your will be done. And I pray for Pastor Heil and his family and for his future in his ministry, in his work for you. And I pray for 
Brother Solomon in Hyderabad and for his family and for his ministry and for his orphanage there. Please bless these dear brothers and sisters in Jesus and their work in India. Bless the truth of your word this morning from the ancient letter given to our Ephesian brothers and sisters. Help us to translate these words into action in our life. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. O Lord our God, our one and only rock and redeemer, you who are our only hope and you who are more than hope enough. And as I conclude this prayer, we do continue to pray for America, for her survival and for her freedom and for her liberty. Help us to maintain that freedom and liberty no matter what the cost may be. And to weather whatever storms may come that we may face in defending the survival of this country, the survival of Western civilization, the survival of Christian civilization, and the survival of the freedoms and liberties that we here in America have traditionally known for over two centuries now. Let truth be victorious in this country and so that your gospel and your name will be proclaimed in this country and around the world. I'm humbled and amazed at how many persons from all over the world are watching us. And they are counting on us to, as our founders would say, to keep that sacred fire of liberty lit and alive. Your will be done in all of these matters and in the life of everyone for whom we have prayed. And help us to have our souls happy and filled with your spirit as we come to your table at the conclusion of this service. And we give you thanks and praise and honor and glory for the divine plan of which you have made us a part, the divine plan of which this table represents and represents our future at the master's table, all of us together as one body, one kingdom, one people, in eternity, forever. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the word of the Lord? Pardon me for a moment. My little desk is well nigh filled this morning. Our journey through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 11. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts, the earth? He who, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So, according to theologian Clinton Arnold, from his wonderful commentary I've been enjoying lately, he gives a very good main idea or summary to verses 7 to 16 in particular, but for today, 
verses 7 to 11, he writes, quote, The Christian community, the Christian community is absolutely essential for growth to maturity because Christ has sovereignly endowed every individual, according to this passage, with special abilities to minister to all the other members. That is why we are to live in the community. It is the responsibility of the divinely gifted leaders mentioned in this list, which he gives us in verse 11. It is the responsibility of these divinely gifted leaders to equip the members for a life of mutual service. The goal of ministry is to help all believers grow in the knowledge of Christ and of the core doctrines of the faith, to mature to greater Christ-likeness, and to manifest love to one another in the life of the community, end quote. So now we're entering into another what you could call life application passage of the letter. As I mentioned last week, this is common for Paul. He begins his letters with very, very deep theology and very, very deep doctrine for several chapters or so. And then about midpoint in the book, he will change to what some folks refer to as life application. Or as I like uh, to say so often, how you translate these words into action in your life. And that's precisely the formula that he follows in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3, heavy doctrine. Very heavy truth concerning God, the nature of God, His character, His divine plan for His creation and those in His creation. That's chapters 1 to 3. Then chapters 4 to 6, well, how do you apply all of this truth to your life? If chapters 1 to 3 are the absolute truth, the ultimate realities of life in this universe that we're confronted with, well, then, how do we translate this into action in our life? How are we supposed to live after being confronted with all of this, this truth? And that's what Paul proceeds to teach us to do, to help us out with for the remainder of the letter. Chapters 4 to 6. How then shall we live? Good question. Paul answers that. We are each given diverse gifts as part of this divine plan when we receive the new birth and the Holy Spirit dwells in the core of our being, giving us new life. And we are to put these diverse or differing, varied gifts that He has given us to some amount or measure to work on our life. All of us, absolutely every single one of us. Now He will focus on, in verse 11, folks who are called by Christ and gifted by Christ to the church to bear responsibility for the teaching and preaching and proclamation of the Word. What we call servant leaders in the church. But notice he says, to each one of us. Every single solitary Christian believer, by the power of the Spirit and the new birth, has been given certain gifts. And we are all to put those gifts to work in our life, to serve one another, and for service in the church and for the church. The Christian life is always active. It is never passive. It is never passive. So, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So let's unpack this. Let me offer you this translation as well. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So now, slightly different wording from the, my pulpit Bible, New American Standard Bible. So now Paul turns from teaching the unity of the church, which we studied last week, to teaching about diversity within the body. There is diversity in unity. That's interesting. And this diversity, it's not about gender, it's not about ethnicity, it's not about class, it's not about society, it's not about uh, commerce or finances. 
It's about gifts. Diversity in unity, diversity of gifts. A large variation of gifts amongst the large variety of individual Christian believers in the local church and in the church universal, the church worldwide. So this is all about diversity and Christ's sovereign distribution of gifts that he gives to believers to serve within the body. What are these gifts? These gifts are skills, they are talents, they are abilities, they are certain uh, areas or realms of knowledge. And you can fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Any talent, any skill, any ability, any knowledge that you can put to work serving your brothers and sisters in Christ and that you can put to work serving the church local and the church worldwide, the church universal. Paul is saying that to each and every individual, God has given a gift to assist, to serve, to contribute to the growth and the well-being of the body as a whole. We should all know what our gifts are, and we should all be nurturing them, and we should all be making a contribution. If you do not know what your gifts are, ask Him. Ask Him in honesty and sincerity, and He will tell you. He will let you know. And you might be surprised what talents and skills and abilities that you have that He does want you to use some way, somehow, for the body, here and abroad. Notice, very important point, who gives these gifts? Christ Himself gives these gifts. That's interesting. He doesn't even mention us as the source of the gift. Jesus Christ Himself, the head of the church, God the Redeemer, He Himself gives these gifts. These are gifts given by way of the grace of Christ. Christ does not only give us grace in saving us, as we are chosen before the foundation of the world to be part of the divine plan. He showers us with His grace in granting us salvation that He won for us, but He also bestows us grace by giving us these gifts. The word for grace is that wonderful New Testament Greek word that the apostles are inspired to use for grace, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. Charis, grace, means favor. It can mean mercy, gracious behavior to someone. Many times it simply means favor. You have received the favor of Christ. He has favored you with gifts to serve one another. The church local, the church universal. Christ bestows His favor, this grace, upon us by giving each of us gifts, these talents, these skills, these abilities, which are to serve the body, to serve the church. And Paul is not referring to some sort of differing measure of saving grace. There are not differing measures of saving grace with each every individual to save us. No, that's not what he means. He means differing measures and amounts of gifts. He gives you talents and skills and abilities in differing measures. In that way, the gift of grace varies with each and every one of us. Differing measures of gifts to serve in Christ's church. And again, these gifts are graciously given to us by Christ Himself, the head of the church. Christ bestows these gracious gifts, in other words, according to His plan. His plan, His will, His knowledge, His wisdom, His way, and the needs of the church. Christ chooses who receives what gifts and to what measure or amount each person receives or is given these gifts. Verse 8, and here we have a quote, a citation. 
Wherefore it says, or as we read elsewhere in Scripture, it is written, Wherefore it says, or therefore it says, pardon me, when he ascended on high, speaking of the Christ, when he, Christ Jesus, ascended on high, he, Christ the Messiah, led captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men, or he gave gifts to his people. Wherefore it says, obviously, the verse, pardon me for a moment, digest my desk that I love so much. This verse is a quote, this verse is a citation of Psalm 68. Psalm 68, verse 18 in particular. Some of you have your study Bibles. You may see that in your textual notes. So Paul, the master theologian under the inspiration of the Spirit, he begins to quote Psalm 68. Psalm 68, 18 in particular. Now something about Psalm 68. Psalm 68 begins as a prayer. And it ends as a song. It begins as something of a prayer for God to defeat His enemies and come to the rescue of His people. And by the end of Psalm 68, Psalm 68 is often interpreted as a song of triumph. The Lord answers the prayer. It is a triumphant song of the Lord. In particular, we believe this is the Lord the Messiah, God the Son. The Lord is a victorious warrior king who does indeed come to save his people and rewards his faithful people. Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God that this psalm is messianic. It is about Christ the Messiah. And it is ultimately about the victory of God the Son who is Lord, who rewards his people. So let's unpack this a bit. What is Paul teaching by way of this psalm? Paul interprets, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that this is Christological, this is Messianic. The Lord, the warrior king who comes to the rescue and rewards his people in Psalm 68 is ultimately about God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his work of his incarnation. It's a celebration of what will take place when Messiah comes. He, the Christ, will save His people from their enemies. Not only human enemies, but ultimately their spiritual enemies. Humanity's greatest enemy, the evil one himself. Demons, the powers of darkness. Fallen angels. He will save us from ourselves and from our sin nature. He will save us from the power of sin. He will save us from death itself. And of course, again, the powers of darkness. And He will save us from our human enemies. This Lord who arrives to save and reward His people... The Messiah, what he will do when he comes, he defeats and humiliates his enemies who are the enemies of his people. He will subjugate the enemy and he will give spoils of victory or share the spoils of his victory with his people, including these gifts that Paul is speaking of. These gifts that Messiah will give to the people whom he saves. Now, when Paul makes the remark, when he ascended on high... Quoting Psalm 68, what is that obviously referring to? The ascension of Jesus at the conclusion of his first advent, his earthly work and ministry as we commonly refer to it. When he ascended on high, after Christ's victory on his cross, after the victory of his resurrection, the triumph of his completed mission, he ascended in his incarnate human resurrected body back to the place from whence he came in eternity the place where God alone dwells in His, the infinite God in His localized presence, the place where we traditionally call heaven, where the saints of the righteous, the souls of the righteous go 
upon death. The personal dwelling place of God, as some have referred to it. He ascended there to take His place at the seat of cosmic authority, ruling and reigning over His universe at the right hand of God Almighty the Father, where He is now seeing His plan through to completion, still serving us in the capacity that the book of Hebrews gives us, our representative before the throne of the Father, right? And the place from where He will come back to planet Earth to rule and to reign and to restore a fallen creation. Paul speaks of this earlier in the letter. Do you remember? Let's go back there briefly. Chapter 1, verses 20 to 21 which He brought about in Christ, speaking of God's divine plan, which He brought about in Christ, verse 20, when He raised Him from the dead, and what? And seated Him at His right hand. The heavenly places. Christ's coronation in His incarnate body, resurrected body, is King of kings and Lord of lords. Seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, when he ascended, now what's the chronology here? Some theologians believe he led captive a host of captives in that three-day period after his death on the cross and before his resurrection. Or did this take place at the time of the ascension, this public display in the spirit realm of his victory over the powers of darkness, these captives that he subjugated in a victory parade? The victory parade when he returned to the right hand of the Father after completing his mission. It's interesting to contemplate that. But when Paul says he led captive a host of captives, this is, we believe, traditionally, a reference to Christ defeating the powers of darkness, the evil one, our spiritual demonic enemies, in his death upon the cross, his victory upon the cross, and the victory of his resurrection. By the by, spiritual warfare, again, is a major theme in this letter. Christ's victory over the powers of darkness and our victory as Christ's people over the powers of darkness. Christ defeated them. He is subjugating them and He will ultimately subjugate them. He will ultimately strip them of all of their power and destroy them in the final judgment. And this is the fate of evil people as well. The psalm, Psalm 68, describes Christ's victory in the terms of that of an ancient warrior king. And he gave gifts to men. So Psalm 68 prophesies the giving of these gracious gifts that Paul is speaking of here in the letter to the Ephesians. And he gave gifts to men. Or he gave gifts or spoils to his people. Christ, upon ascending to his divine cosmic throne, upon completion of his mission in his first advent, he continues to shower grace upon his people. He continues to bless his people with these gifts. These blessings, these gifts, these talents, these skills, these abilities to serve one another in the church local and the church universal. Verse 9. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth or to the lower parts the earth? That's very interesting. What in the world is he saying there? Let's unpack that. So what is Paul saying here? Let me offer you another translation. Quote, what is the significance of his ascension unless he also descended down to the lower parts, the earth? 
So, hmm, the interpretation of this verse, <laughs> as you can imagine, has been debated. There's been a lot of debate over this, a lot of ink spilled over this verse, or this quotation, this citation, what Paul is saying here over the centuries, and to a degree it's debated today. There are two main interpretations of this verse. And these two principal interpretations are chiefly centered around or focused on, well, what does Paul exactly mean by lower regions of the earth? The lower regions, the earth, or descending to the earth or into the earth. What, what does he mean by that? Well, one interpretation is that this means that this phrase refers to Christ descending to what the ancients would call the underworld, the place of the dead, or that you and I would call the spirit world after his death upon the cross in that three-day period before his resurrection. And in that three-day period, he was vindicated by the Father. His perfect sacrifice was accepted by the Father, and he went to proclaim and claim his victory over the spirit world, over the powers of darkness, over the demonic world. This was a very popular interpretation at the time of the early church fathers. Another interpretation is that the phrase refers to Christ's incarnation. That is, when He stepped off His divine throne to take upon Himself a human body and a human nature, according to the divine plan, to come to earth to perform the atoning work of redemption. He descended to the earth, so to speak, when He came to earth in His incarnation, when He took upon Himself this human body and human nature on His mission of redemption. Another, perhaps for sake of argument and for sake of reference to throw in there, another interpretation is that this may refer to going into the lower regions of the earth or going into the earth somehow. It simply uh, refers to his burial. He really died and was buried in preparation for the very real triumph of his bodily resurrection. Now, most theologians believe, or a growing consensus of Theologians believe this is a reference, yes, to Christ's incarnation and His death on the cross and our behalf prior to the triumph of His resurrection and His ascension. This is most likely what Paul means. Perhaps something of all the interpretations above that I gave you. Of course, after Christ's work on the cross, He completed His work, the victory of His triumph of His cross and His resurrection. Of course he defeated the powers of darkness. He defeated death itself and all the rebellious forces of evil. And then he ascended to his rightful place, to the seat of cosmic authority, as we often say, at the right hand of God the Father to rule and reign. After his ascension, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Sent him to do what? To give us these gifts. The Holy Spirit, the soul of God, the Spirit of God poured into the soul of man to give us to life, to give us these spiritual gifts and to equip us for service in the church and in the kingdom. The Spirit sent to serve His people in a dramatic new way as almost never before in history. Verse 10, He who descended, the Christ who descended in His incarnation, is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. Interesting. Paul has stated this truth before, earlier in the letter, in chapter 1. So let me work through this carefully for you this way. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, 
who descended to earth from his royal throne in eternity, when he took upon himself a human body and a human nature, he himself also, at the completion of his mission, in his first advent, in his redeeming work, he then ascended far above all of the created universe, that he might fill or fulfill all things. That is an amazing truth statement. Amazing. Ascended far above the heavens. Christ is God the Son in His triumph, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, this is very hard for us to understand. I think when we say Christ ascended, this is such a magnificent reality and a magnificent event. The Bible, is the inspired biblical authors are speaking to human beings in language that we can understand. This event, this ascension, yes, He ascended. But He went up and He went out. He went up and He went beyond. He went to a place that is probably perhaps another dimension that we will not experience until we die or we will not experience until Christ returns. This is probably a place outside of time and space in this universe as we know it and are familiar with it. The place where God Almighty dwells and rules and reigns over His created universe and where He gathers the souls and spirits of His people to Him and where the holy angels dwell, where the spirit world dwells. And this world is going to come crashing in on planet Earth one day when Christ returns and they will both be joined they will both be wedded perfectly, never to be separated again. The ascension of Christ is an astounding event. It's very, very difficult for we with finite minds to understand. He ascended beyond space, beyond time, beyond this universe, where there He rules and reigns supreme. It is where He came from in the first place, as God the Son. He rules above and beyond His created universe. He is above all. He is Lord of all. He is conqueror of all. That He might fill all things. In short, that means that Jesus Christ, God the Son, fulfills all things. He fulfills the divine plan in that the meaning and purpose of everything in this universe is fulfilled in His person, in His work, and in His plan. It is all about Him. And we find our meaning and our purpose in Him. Paul is stressing the truth of the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ, God the Son. Victorious in His plan, victorious over all things. Ruling and reigning over His divine plan, His comprehensive plan for His universe, and everything that is in it. Down to the last detail. Don't forget this. When it looks like the world is in absolute chaos... Don't forget this basic, foundational, fundamental fact that he is giving us in this passage. Verse 11, And he, Christ himself, gave some... That's an interesting thing to say. He doesn't say gave gifts. He says gave some. Gave some people as gifts. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And this is a verse we conclude with today. So what is that all about? Let me quote to you a, a textual note from the ESV Study Bible. Those 
those of you who have your ESV study Bible, take note of it there. Quote, very well put. Christ gives specific spiritual gifts to people in the church whose primary mission is to minister the Word of God. End quote. So some members of the church specifically are given some specific gifts which are all the more duties and responsibilities, that is, to equip them to work as servant leaders in and for the church, nurturing, ministering, guarding, teaching, proclaiming God's Word. And He gave some. He, Christ, gave some. What does Christ give? The answer is, who does Christ give? Christ gave some to be apostles, gave some to be prophets, gave some to be evangelists, gave some to be pastors and teachers. Do you get what he's saying there? It's very subtle. Christ gives these servant leaders as gifts to the church. These people, they themselves are gifts that Christ gives to the church to serve the church. And He gives them gifts in some varying measure to serve the church. Clint Arnold writes in his commentary, allow me to quote him again, Christ gives these gifted servant leaders to the church not to do the ministry for the various members of the body while they passively receive, but to help prepare each and every one of them to actively serve in the ways that He has gifted them. End quote. Everybody is to be active. No one is to be passive. And your servant leaders, gifted by Christ to teach and proclaim the Word of God, are to equip and train you from the Word of God to put your gifts to work in serving the local church and the church universal. Now notice again, Paul says Christ. Christ Himself is the one who raises up and gives gifted leaders these people who have certain gifts to the church. And these are servant roles fulfilled by certain people, yes, whom Jesus Himself sovereignly chooses and enables them for their service. Now this list, I should make mention of this, this list is not exhaustive, it's not comprehensive, it's not complete. There are other servant leaders who serve in the church whom Christ chooses and has gifted. Notice He doesn't, uh, he doesn't mention deacons. But he's not leaving out deacons because deacons aren't important or deacons are some sort of second-class servant position in the church. No, deacons are absolutely essential. Deacons are gifted. Deacons are also Christ's gifts to serve the church. Deacons are one of the quote-unquote official church servant leaders established by the inspired apostles. Why does Paul leave them out? This is why. Paul mentions these five types of servant leaders here specifically because they are principally responsible for the proclamation of the Bible, for the teaching of the Bible, for the application of the truth of God's Word, for the application of the truth of Scripture to believers' lives. Deacons, if you recall from the book of Acts, are chiefly responsible to serve the literal, physical needs of the church. And the elders of the church are principally responsible for the spiritual oversight of the church, even though obviously deacons and elders, pardon me, work hand in hand together. But all five of these leadership roles mentioned in verse 11, they are specifically to build into believers' lives a very strong, a very truthful, a very healthy, and active growing knowledge of God, God the Son, 
God the Father, God the Spirit, God's divine plan, God's divine truth. And these servant leaders mentioned in this verse are to help and equip believers to, as I like to say, pardon me for using the expression again, translate the words of God into action in your life and hold us all accountable to do so. Let's go through this list. It will not take long. Apostles, apostolos in Koine Greek, which literally being translated means one who is sent. That's what an apostle is, one who is sent, an emissary, an ambassador, serving a higher power or authority with a given message. Now, the capital A apostles were in the first century A.D., Paul and the others. You and I are small letter A apostles. We are sent as emissaries and ambassadors of Christ in this world. Paul here, I believe, is perhaps specifically referring to he himself and his brother apostles, the original pillars, as we say, of the early church to establish Christ's church in this world. Next is prophetes. In this case, written in the plural. Not Old Testament era prophets, but New Testament era prophets, New Covenant era prophets, through whom God speaks to build and to establish and nurture His church. And I mentioned this before, earlier in the letter, when Paul mentioned prophets earlier in the letter. Paul lists this gift and teaches upon this gift in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. We also find the gift of prophecy very much in action throughout the book of Acts. Next is evangelists. Euangelistai, from the Koine Greek word euangelion. Euangelion is the word by which we come by evangel, by which we come by gospel. Euangelion means gospel in English, good news, the good news of a victory, which is to be proclaimed. So a euangelistai is a person who spreads the euangelion, the good news. And we believe evangelists are persons who primarily, first and foremost, if not exclusively, proclaim the gospel. The saving message of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ or persons who primarily, if not exclusively, engage in what we call evangelistic work. And people are called to do this. Can, usually it's itinerant. Usually evangelists traditionally are itinerant preachers. They travel, but not always, not necessarily. Obviously a good example in the modern world would be missionaries. Now, missionaries often engage as pastors and teachers in other roles, but the most obvious that comes to mind is a missionary proclaiming evangelistically the gospel. We used to have a lot of evangelists in the United States. I think perhaps because of the growth of churches or modern technology, we don't have so many itinerant evangelists as we used to. We need them. We need them again. We need them back. And there are many evangelists and itinerant evangelists who travel throughout the world at large. Next role is pastors, poimenes, which literally means shepherd. We translate poimen, poimenes, into English as pastor or shepherd. Um, we also believe, I hang my hat with the theologians who believe that this is synonymous with elder, presbyteros in the New Testament. Uh, I pitch my tent, pardon the expression, in the camp of theologians who uh, believe that 
when we read of pastors or shepherds or elders or overseers in the New Testament, these are different words referring to exactly the same office of servant leader in the church. They are all synonymous. If you have any questions on this, please see uh, Dan or I. We can give you reference materials about biblical eldership, why we believe this is a correct interpretation. There's a wonderful um, author named Alexander Strauch who's written a wonderful book called Biblical Eldership. And he does believe that uh, pastors, shepherds, elders, overseers, they're all the same office of servant leader in the church. To what? To shepherd, to nurture, to care for the flock of God. Elders or pastors are to shepherd, watch over, and nurture and protect Christ's people. But last of all, in conclusion, this is something of a head-scratcher. Has been for many centuries, and it is now. He says, pastors and teachers. Poimenes kai, K-A-I, Koine Greek word for and, didaskeloi. Teachers. Didaskaloi means teachers. We derive the word what? Didactic, meaning to teach and to instruct. From didaskaloi, teachers. Now here's the question. How do we interpret this? Should we interpret this? Yes. Totally separate or totally distinct pastors and teachers? Or do we interpret this as some might wish to interpret it? Pastor dash teacher. Pastor slash teacher. Maybe a little bit of both. But I do believe by examining the original language, Paul is making some sort of differentiation or some sort of distinction here between pastors and elders and teachers. Let me pick that apart for you. Did I just muddy the water up for you? I hope I didn't. I think it's, it's really fairly easy. I think teacher is very closely related to pastor and elder. I think probably what Paul means here is probably an elder who is primarily, if not almost exclusively, to serve as a teacher. That's what I think he probably means. A teacher of Scripture, a teacher of God's revealed truth, His Word. Now there's some debate here as to the divinity differentiation or functioning of these roles. Again, pastor, totally separate from teacher, or pastor-teacher, an elder who is a teacher. Are they truly distinct from one another or no? Those of you who have your ESV study Bible, the study Bible makes a very important point here I'd like to share with you. Quote, if teachers are a separate group, they can be understood as a special branch of shepherds or elders who are responsible for instruction in God's Word. So, teachers could or very well should be perhaps viewed as a function or a role somewhat distinct from shep shepherds, and elders chiefly responsible for instruction in God's Word. Let me pick that apart for you a little bit. We believe that the New Testament teaches that there is to be a, as Alexander Strauch would call it, a plurality of elders serving the church. More than one elder is to serve the local church. And other books of the New Testament give you the qualifications for elders and basically the duties for elders. And to an appreciable degree, every elder is to be expected to be able to teach, to know Scripture, to know the truth, why it's true and why it's important, and to offer instruction to the members of the flock. But I do believe that there are other passages, and this passage here, 
when Paul says pastors or elders and teachers, that amongst each local church, out of that body of elders, and of course, how many elders do you have? It depends on the needs of the church and the size of the church. But depending on the size of the church and the need of the church, amongst that body of elders who serves your church, there should be at least one, if not more. One or more elders are to almost be set aside primarily to function as a teacher. That person's chief primary task is to serve as a teacher, to teach the Word of God, and of course to assist the elders in, in other duties. These people mentioned in verse 11, they have been chosen by Christ and gifted by Christ and given to you as a gift to serve you and to equip you and to prepare you. And I got a bit ahead of myself because my next question in closing was to be, well, what's all of this for? What's all of this about? What are these people to be doing? What are they to accomplish? What's the end game? What's the goal? Well, these servant leaders in this list, they are to do, they are to accomplish by this service precisely what verse 12 tells you. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's their marching orders. That's the goal. And to that goal and to those marching orders, we will return next week with verse 12, the equipping of the saints. In closing, I will give you a very brief word from Dr. S. M. Bow from his commentary. He writes, makes a few very good points. The standard for true Christian living is always ultimately a proper, truthful interpretation of the Word of God. Some texts are easy to interpret. Some texts require great wisdom and very hard work and serious reflection in order to understand. But the main guidelines for our lives before our Lord are clear. In Ephesians 4 to 7, 16, passage we're studying now, of course, Paul is making clear that the foundation of maturity in true Christian faith entails a true knowledge of Christ from His Word, rejecting deceitful errors of falsehood and receiving the benefits of the gifted ministers of the Word and their pastoral oversight which have been provided by Christ Himself. This obviously entails living in a community of believers in Christ and exercising these gifts of grace that He has given to us for the good of our fellow Christians. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for these life application passages of Brother Paul to teach us how to live wisely and well on our pilgrimage to our eternal home. Help each and every one of us gathered here and watching and listening to be keen, to be conscious, to be aware of our gifts that you have given each and every one of us. And that we are to put these gifts, these talents and skills and abilities to work, actively to work for the church local and the church universal. And those of us whom you have given gifts 
to study and to teach and to proclaim the word of God. Hold us accountable, Almighty God, by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit to faithfully, honestly, and truthfully deliver your word to your flock, to your people, and to watch over them by way of your word carefully and diligently. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, may Jesus our great Redeemer be glorified in and through us all and whatever our service may be. In Christ Jesus' holy name, amen. To prepare us for the Lord's table, let's stand and sing hymn number 179.